Amen. Today we're going to get into the Word together. This is the third week in a series that we're doing out of the book of Joshua. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead and find your way there to the book of Joshua. This morning, I want to talk to you about being a part of a Joshua generation. As I look at the story of the people of Israel and what God did in their lives, specifically what God did in the generation that was Joshua's generation, more and more there's a desire in my heart to be a part of that kind of a generation. And so today as we share the word, I want you to hear an invitation to be a part of something that God wants to do in the lives of his people. You know, when I talk about a generation this morning, I don't want anyone to disqualify themselves because of their age. I'm not talking about youth culture. I'm not talking about the, the up and comers or the young adults. And I'm not talking about senior adults or, or anybody in between there. When I talk about a generation today, what I'm talking about is the spirit of a people. The generation of, of the people that Joshua led as they prepared to cross over from the wilderness years into the land of promise, into the Canaan land. And, and of all the chapters in the book of Joshua, I've probably preached on Joshua chapter 3 more than any of the others. And, and I just absolutely love this story in the Word of God. And so as we look at this story in, in Joshua chapter 3, <clears throat> I want you to see some things that, that characterized their life. And in case you haven't been here for the last few weeks, or, or maybe you're, you're not really familiar with the, the history of the, the people of Israel in the Exodus, let me just catch up to speed a little bit what we've been talking about. Moses was the leader of Israel, and most people are familiar with at least his name. God used him to deliver the people out of bondage. And in our communion time, I talked a little bit about that moment when there was the Passover and, and the ten plagues. And after that tenth plague... Uh, Israel, or Egypt rather, finally released the Israelites. And so Pharaoh released them and said, fine, go and worship your God. And so the Israelites headed out into the wilderness and they came to the Red Sea. And when they got to that place, about time they realized that they had gotten themselves to a place where they couldn't go any farther forward, all of a sudden, the heads of the charioteers of the Egyptian army came cresting over the horizon. They had changed their mind, and they were coming to destroy the Israelites. And it was in that moment, right there, with the, the Egyptian army behind them and the Red Sea in front of them, that Moses stood up before the people and he said, Be strong, stand firm, and you will see the salvation of God. And many of us are familiar with that iconic imagery from the Old Testament when Moses raises his staff out over the waters of the Red Sea. The waters roll back and they all cross over. And the Bible says they crossed over on dry land. They weren't sloshing through the mud. God supernaturally parted the waters, dried the, the sea bottom, and they crossed over on dry land. And of course, the Egyptian army came running after them. And when they got out into the middle of the sea, the waters closed. And God had delivered his people. He had set them free. It's an incredible story of what God did under Moses, they saw all kinds of miracles. And, and we talked about some of these last week about how, you know, God provided for them when the water was bitter. He made it sweet again. When they ran out of water, Moses struck a rock and, and water flowed out of it. 
One thing after another, God led them every day with a, a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of clouds by day. Supernatural things that they saw. And yet when they got to the edge of the promised land, when they got to the place that God had really intended for them to go to, they became discouraged. Many of you remember the story of the 12 spies that Moses sent in to check out the land. And they came back and two of those spies said, man, this land is awesome. This land is incredible. God wants to give us this land. But 10 of the spies came back and they were discouraged. And they said, we look like grasshoppers in their sight. There's giants in that land. And because the people listened to the report of the 10 and not the two, they spent the next 40 years as a nation in the wilderness. Wandering around. Last week, I told you, though, that a lot of times we look at that wilderness wandering as a place of rebellion, as a place of being far from God. And I want to kind of paint it in a different light for you in this series. I want you to see that when they were in the wilderness, that wasn't such a bad place to be. Certainly wasn't all that God intended for them. But I mean, think about it. They were in a place where they saw God lead them every day. Through fire and through a cloud. God supplied food for them every day. Manna fell from heaven. They would just get up and go and collect their daily rations. They never had to plant seed or harvest crops. God was faithful to them in that season. But that generation all died in the wilderness. Another 40 years had passed. And one of those two men that were the original spies that went in and came back and said, we can take this land. God is for us. One of those two men was Joshua, who this book is named after. Joshua believed, as did Caleb, that God was going to give them that land. And Joshua ended up becoming the leader of Israel that followed Moses after Moses died. That's where the book of Joshua begins. Moses, my servant, is dead. And then God begins in chapter 1 to build up Joshua as the leader, to prepare him to lead the people. Last week we looked at chapter 2 and the incredible story of Rahab the prostitute. And it's almost as if in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit who inspired the writings of Scripture zooms way in. It's like he zooms way in, in the big narrative of God's redemption story. He comes all the way down to look at a single strand of the thread of the rope of redemption. And we see God save Rahab as she puts her trust in the promise of God and and hangs a scarlet cord out of her window in the wall of Jericho. An incredible story. Well, now we're in chapter 3, and and God's kind of zoomed back out to look at what he's doing in the whole nation. And chapter 3 is really about God Preparing his people for what he wants to do. Because see, being in the wilderness wasn't a bad thing. God was with them. God was for them. God was blessing them. But he wanted them to cross over another body of water. Not the Red Sea this time, but this time the Jordan River. Right on the other side, on the west bank of the Jordan River, was Canaan. It was the promised land. It was the place that God had destined for them to occupy and inherit. And this wasn't just a promise, by the way, that was for that generation only. This went back multiple generations. Multiple generations. This goes back to the people of Israel all the way before they were even a nation, before they were even a tribe or a clan. In fact, this promise that God wants to give them that land goes back before they were even a family. It was just one man and his sterile wife. And God said to Abraham, I'm giving you this land. 
as an inheritance. There's a promise that God has for them. And so I want us to put ourselves in the story and understand this about this crossing over, this moving from the wilderness into the Canaan land, crossing Jordan. It's not about coming into a relationship with Jesus. It's about moving from what is good to what is God's best. How many of you believe today that God has more for you? Amen. I know that's an open statement, but I just kind of live a little bit optimistic. And so you don't have to finish the statement or define it for me. I can tell you right now, I know God's got more for me. More than I've seen, more than I've done, more than I've experienced. Because the Bible tells me this. The Bible says that God will do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you can think or ask or even imagine. So I don't know how big your imagination is. Mine's pretty big. And so I can tell you, I can promise you, God's got more in store for me. And so as we position ourselves around this word, I want you to hear the heart of God calling out to a generation of people saying, I've been faithful, I'll still be faithful, but there's something more that I want you to have. There's something you need to prepare your heart to receive so that you can step in to the fullness of what I've promised you. I want you to look with me in the story, Joshua chapter 3. It says this in verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and they went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. And here's what they said. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move from your position and follow it. I want to just camp out there for a minute. But let me emphasize something to you here that that was wrong with Moses' generation. They had a lot of things going for them. Moses, for all the great things they had going for them, the problem was they never really learned how to trust God when they couldn't see what he was doing. See, if you look at Moses' generation, what you see is a pattern of miracle and then obedience miracle and then obedience god does something and the people respond in faith whether it's the plagues or the parting of the water god works a miracle and then the people respond in faith but here's the difference in the moses generation and the joshua generation in joshua's generation the script is flipped you see something new happening you see obedience happening and then miracles follow The people step out and trust God, and then a miracle happens. God comes through and shows them something. And can I just tell you here, by way of introduction, to kind of put us all in the scene, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a Joshua generation. Thank you, Deb. I'm glad you came to church this morning. We'll give them time. Let me tell you why. The Bible says this, Jesus, when he was commissioning the church, In Mark chapter 16, he said this, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Then he said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Does anybody know what he said next? He said, and these signs will follow them that believe. A Joshua generation steps out and does what God says do, and then miracles, signs and wonders follow them that believe. A Joshua generation doesn't stand on the shoreline and say, God, if you'll do it, I'll follow you. 
They say, God, you said it. It's mine in Jesus' name. I'm going to take it and believe that you're going to show up and do something powerful. How many of you want to be a part of that generation? Amen. I believe God wants us to cross into something. And so he gives instruction right here in verse 3. Look at it again. He's already told him. He said, you're going to see the Levitical priests. They're going to be carrying the ark. They're going to be carrying the ark. And then he said very clearly there in verse 3, he said, follow it. Follow it. You're going to see the ark. You're going to see the priest carrying the ark. But follow it. Can I just tell you, if you're going to step into the fullness of what God has for your life, you have to follow it. Here's what I'm talking about. See, the Ark of the Covenant was the visible representation of the invisible God. God said, this is the place where my presence is going to settle down. The Ark represented God's presence to the people. When they saw the Ark... When they had the ark, they knew God was with them. When they lost the ark, and and it was taken from them at one time in their history, they didn't have the presence of God with them. Things weren't right. They had to go and get it back. The ark represented the presence of God in their lives. It was the, it was the, this box, this ark, and some of you guys are picturing uh, Indiana Jones movies right now in your head. You got the right picture. That's the ark of the covenant. That box, they, it was set in the, holy place in the innermost parts of the tabernacle where they would come in and that's where they would meet with the presence of God. The high priest would come into that place. It was a shadow and a type of Jesus. Last week we talked about how the the rope that that Rahab hung out of her window was a shadow of the rope of salvation that God has for us in Christ. His blood, not a scarlet cord. His blood is the sign of our salvation. And, and we celebrated that this morning. But in chapter 3, the, the shadow of Jesus is this box. It's the ark. Let me, let me tell you about the box. There were three things in it. In the ark of the covenant. The first thing was what's called the testimony. That's the two stone tablets that God gave to Moses... When he went up on Mount Sinai, he gave him the Ten Commandments. And, and Moses came down with those Ten Commandments, and this was God's law. They called that the testimony. They put those in the box. Now let me tell you what Jesus said about the law of God when he came on the scene. You, you don't have to turn to this verse. Let me just read it to you. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Gospel of John begins this way. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Can I tell you, Jesus is the Word of God. He is the fulfillment of the law. So those testimonies, those two stone tablets in the box represent Jesus. The second item in the box was a gold jar of manna. And we talked about the manna earlier. It was the way that God supernaturally fed Moses' generation. As they got up every morning, there was provision for them. Just as the dew would form on the ground, there was this wafer-like bread substance that they could eat. And God supplied for them every day manna. And, And throughout the generations, they would talk about how God supplied manna. And so when Jesus came on the scene thousands of years later, here's what he said. Very truly, I tell you, this is John chapter 6, verse 32 through 35. He said, it is not Moses 
that gave you bread from heaven. And I'm sure when he said that, all the religious folks thought, you don't even know, you don't even know your scriptures. What are you talking about? We all know it was Moses. He said, it's my father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The manna didn't give them life. The manna just sustained them for one day. And they had to get up the next morning and go out and get some more. But Jesus said, that's not the bread from heaven. So they said, wow, bread that sustains for life. Sir, give us this bread from now on. They just wanted another miracle. They wanted Jesus to multiply more loaves and more fish. And they said, give us, give us that kind of a deal. Here's what Jesus said to him. John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So you understand when they're walking through the wilderness with that box on their shoulder, the golden jar of manna inside is a shadow of what is to come. The bread of life, Jesus Christ, the son of God. There's a third item in the box. And the third item in the box was Aaron's staff. Aaron was Moses' brother. He was the priest. And there was a time when the people were fighting over who God was going to use. And some people decided, well, God's going to use us. And so they went in and they tried to do some things that God had only prescribed for Aaron to do. And so God said, okay, we're going to settle this. Here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to collect a staff from each and every tribe of the people. And I want you to carve their name on the staff. But on Levi's staff, I want you to carve the name of Aaron because that's where the, the priesthood came from, the Levites. And, and we're going to put all these staffs in my presence and you can close the doors on it. And tomorrow, you're going to come in and pick them up and you're going to see who I've chosen. So they come back the next day. And when they go to get all of the staffs out of the presence of God, they're all just a bunch of sticks with people's names carved on them, except for one. The one that belonged to Aaron, the Bible said it had grown branches, and it had budded, and it had almonds growing on it. And it was evident that God was bringing life to, to Aaron's rod. Now, how in the world does that signify and represent Jesus? I mean, we get it about the testimony and, and the gold manna, but how does a stick that, that is just lifeless and, and dead and it doesn't have a root system, how does that spring forth life? Well, some of you are ahead of me already. Jesus would come and be suspended between heaven and earth, nothing below him, nothing above him, and he died. There was no life in his body, and they buried him in a tomb, but three days later, he rose back to life again. Amen? Amen. And so that stick pointed to a resurrected Savior. It was in the box. It was in the box, and so... When the instructions come to the Israelites, look, you're going to see the Levites, you're going to see the priest, they're going to be carrying the box. Follow it. And here's what God's saying to us. If you're going to cross over into what God has for your life, you have to be fully committed to following Jesus. To following Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be committed to following Him and Him alone. Let me tell you one more thing about the box. It had a lid on it. It was called the atonement cover. I love this. The atonement cover covered over the testimony. 
You see, the Ten Commandments are called the testimony, but let me tell you what kind of testimony it is. It's actually a testimony against you. It's testimony against me. It's a testimony that rises up and says, guilty. In the court of heaven, it says, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, I'm guilty. None of us can keep all ten. Now, you might say, well, I've never committed adultery. I've never killed someone. Yeah, but have you lied? Have you stolen anything before? Have you ever put anything in your heart ahead of God? Jesus said, if you've, if you've broken one, you've broken them all. And so the verdict of the testimony is you're guilty. But here's what the atonement cover does. It puts a lid on the box. It, it covers the testimony of your guilt. And once a year, the, the, the priest would come in and he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb, as we talked about earlier. And he would sprinkle that blood on the atonement cover as to say that all the stuff in here that says you're guilty, it's covered by the blood. Isn't that awesome? It's covered by the blood of Jesus. All of your guilt. All of your not measuring up. And so here's what they said. Listen, if you're going to cross over, you need to do something. You need to follow Jesus. That's what this box points to. You need to follow it with all of your heart. The Joshua generation is the people that keep their eyes on Jesus. Not, not on the priest. Not on the leader. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You know, a lot of the weakness in the church of America today is because we've exalted personalities above the Savior. We run to people. We run after uh, charisma. We run after things that, that, that won't last. And, and, and listen, if you, if you put your faith in, in somebody other than Jesus, I can promise you it's going to fail. They're going to fail. Somebody asked me the other day, you know, last week was our business meeting and, and we were electing people to serve on the board and we were talking about one of the stipulations. One of the stipulations is you have to be a member of the church at least a year before you can serve. I said, the reason is because you need to be here long enough for me to say something you don't like. I mean, give me one week, I might get by. Give me a month. You might still love me. I don't know. I might have blown it with you already. But, you know, give me time and eventually I'll say something you don't like. I'll bother you. I'll disappoint you. I'll fail you. That's not my intention. That's none of our intention. But listen, the person that absolutely loves you the most in your life, they'll disappoint you too. You might have put I love mom tattooed on your arm. But she's going to let you down. It's going to happen. Because we're fallible. We're imperfect. Open mouth, insert foot. It happens, right? Happens to the best of us, the most well-intentioned of us. And that's why a Joshua generation says, we're not going to look to the right or left. We're not going to get fixated on styles and personality and preference. We're going to look to Jesus. Follow it. That's what he said. Follow it with all of your heart. Look at, look at it with me. Verse 4. It says, then you will know which way to go. Since you have never been this way before. Never been this way before. God wants, to, God wants to do something in your life that you've never experienced before. Something you've never seen before. That's why it's so important that we follow Jesus. You know, Proverbs tells us to lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge Him. Not, not the church, 
Him. Acknowledge Him. And He will make your way straight. He'll make a clear path for you. We have to focus on Him because He wants to do something He's never done before. And the tendency for all of us, I think, is to think we know how God's going to do it. To think we know how it's going to happen. To try to anticipate based on past experiences. And and past experiences are great. They can teach us a lot. There's wisdom in our past experiences. But there's also limitations in them. If we expect God to always do things the way that he's always done it. So he says, I'm not going to do it the way that I did it before. In fact, I I was in a prayer meeting uh, with some folks this week. And we were praying for the church. And praying about what we felt the Lord wanted uh, wanted what he wanted to do. And, and God showed me a picture in that prayer meeting. And, and I just saw this. I just, in my mind, I just saw two hands, the right crossed over the left. And I'm just praying. And while I'm praying, I started, well, what, what is that about? What is, what is that? And then all of a sudden, God brought a story back to my recollection. In Genesis, when, when Joseph brought his two young sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, he brought them to his father, Jacob. He wanted He wanted his father to bless his sons. And so he brought Manasseh and he placed him on his right because he's the oldest. And he brought Ephraim and he placed him on his father's left. And he said, here, father, bless my sons. And instead of blessing his sons this way, Jacob crossed his arms. And Joseph tried to correct him. He said, no, 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 dad, no, no, dad. This one's the oldest boy. And and he basically said to him, "I, I know, son, but I'm not doing things the way that you thought they were going to be done. And God just spoke to me in that moment. He's going to do something that that maybe we haven't seen done the way it's been done before, but God wants us to have a heart that says, have your way. I give myself away so you can use me. However you want to do it, God, I'm focused on following Jesus. Follow the ark. Look at verse 5 with me. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate yourselves. That's probably not a word you use every day. Let let me define it for you. (laughs) The devoting or setting apart of anything to the worship or service of God. Can I just remind you this morning that the God we serve is a holy and an awesome God. I mean, I'm glad that we can be comfortable in his presence. I'm glad that we don't have to be uh, stiff and, and religious about coming to church. I'm glad that we can have fun and we can enjoy each other's fellowship and, and we can eat donuts and coffee in the foyer. And God's not offended by that. But hear me, we serve a holy and an awesome God. In fact, here's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10. It is a dreadful thing, verse 31 says. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The New King James Version says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because he's a holy God. He's an awesome God. He's to be reverenced as the Lord of Lords. He's not the big man upstairs. He is the holy and the awesome God of heaven and earth who lives in unapproachable light. And we expect a lot of times like the Israelites did to see great things. I mean, I ask the question, how many think God wants to do great things? Yeah, yeah, I want to see God do great things. We want to see that. But do we consecrate ourselves for the moment? Do we prepare ourselves? And that's really what he was saying to the nation. God wants to do something amazing. So here's what you need to do. You need to consecrate yourself. It means 
purify yourself. To sanctify yourself really is what the word means. That word sanctify. The core concept of sanctification is separation. In the Greek and in the Hebrew, it's the same for words sanctification, for consecration, for the word saint, for the word dedication, for the word holiness. It means to set apart, to just set something apart. And so in in one sense, that's what God's done for us already at salvation. God set you apart. The moment you say, Jesus, be the Lord of my life, you're saved. In fact, if we could put this verse on the screen, Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 10, I want everybody to see this. This is, this is what God does for us in the moment of salvation. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10, it says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all, you see, that's done. We have been made holy. You know what that is? That's, that's positional holiness. That means right now, God sees you as holy. That's why we celebrated today with the cup and the, the juice, because the, the blood has been applied to our lives. The lid is on the box. Our sins are not counted against us. We're, we're holy. We've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. But put up verse 14, because just a couple verses later, it says this, because... By one sacrifice, he has made perfect. That's what happened. He's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Kind of sounds like a contradiction. Are we holy or are we not holy? One is talking about our positional holiness. God sees us perfect, spotless, the lamb of the bride of Christ. But then there's actual holiness. That's the work of sanctification. That's the setting apart. That's the, you know, come out from among them. That's us living in this world, but not of this world. That's the difference, the contrast of light and darkness in the life of a Christian. So the moment you get saved, you might still be addicted to drugs. You might have come in here uh, with a buzz and left with a lingering buzz, but a life transformed and changed by Jesus. And he sees you holy, done finished once for all but he doesn't expect you to come back to church every weekend with the same hang-ups with the same addictions that process of actual holiness is our responsibility as the people of god now not to do it on our own but with the help of the lord to have him strengthen us and help us to to overcome those things and that's why we had a moment this morning in our service where we said if there's any area in your life that you feel like you haven't released it to god step into a moment of obedience and say god i i give this away to you i give this to you i give my addictions i give my poor lifestyle patterns i give my foul language away lord i give you all the stuff that you don't really want from me anymore i've had people ask me before questions like well you know if i smoke cigarettes does that mean i'm not going to heaven no No, God in his grace can save you and redeem you right now. You still got your mix-ups, your mistakes, and your past. But listen, God loves you enough to receive you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He wants transformation, that we're being changed into the image of Christ day by day by day so that your life reflects his. And so Joshua says, listen, you got to do something. You want to be this generation that finally crosses over. 
You've got to consecrate yourself. Consecrate yourself. Consecration doesn't just mean set apart from stuff. Because that's legalism, right? I mean, that's just religion, to just have a whole list of stuff you can't do. That's how a lot of people understand consecration. That's how a lot of people understand faith. Think that the church just tells you all the stuff you can't do. Consecration is not, something is not consecrated because of what it's taken away from. It's consecrated by what it's used for. I'll give you an example. In the Old Testament, they had dishes and utensils that were consecrated. They were set apart for usefulness in the, the temple. You couldn't borrow that fork, take it home and use it at your house. It was dedicated. It had a specific purpose. No one else could use it for any other purpose. But it wasn't consecrated because it was not in your house. It was consecrated because it was in God's house. And that's the way it is with us. We're not consecrated just apart from something. We're consecrated for something. We're set apart from sin and to God. And so serving God is not about, hear this, it's not about you just not doing this and not doing that and stopping this and stopping that and abstaining from that place and not going over there. It's about being purposed for the plan of God in your life. There's something that he wants for you. So Joshua says, consecrate yourself. Consecrate yourself. Let's move forward here in the story. The Joshua generation is a people who are willing to come clean from sin. To come clean from sin, to separate themselves from it so that God can do something amazing in their life. Look at verse 9. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. (coughs) Here's an important point. Here's an important point about the Joshua generation. It's a people who will listen for the word of God. He said, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. I'm going to tell you why that's significant. It's significant that he says it right there and that they respond because God had already spoken to them. In fact, at this point in the story, they already know what they're going to do. They're going to to cross over the Jordan. They know where they're going to do it, right here at this place. They, they know why they're going to do it. Because God wants to give you an inheritance in the land. They know when they're going to do it. God had told them three days ago, three days from now. Look, look at it with me in Joshua chapter 1. Down in verse 10. Joshua 1 verse 10 and 11. It says, so Joshua ordered the officers of the people. Go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan Here. To go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. So they knew what they were going to do. They knew when they were going to do it. They knew where they were going to do it. They knew why they were going to do it. The only thing they didn't know is how. Now, maybe I'm alone in this. But when I read Joshua chapter 1 and I get all the information about what we're going to do, when we're going to do it, where we're going to do it, why we're going to do it, God wants us to do it. I just kind of got the feeling that on day number three, when Joshua got up, I'd be out there blowing up a raft. I mean, I'd I'd be out there 
trying to build a bridge or something. I mean, God said we could have it. I just wonder if there weren't people when Joshua got up on that day and they're standing out there on the edge of the Jordan with their staff going. Hey, Joshua, get your stick, man. Maybe you got to use your stick. Get out here and wave it and see if God will see if God will part the waters for us. Thought they had it all down. Joshua says, here's something you need to do. You need to wait. You need to listen for God to speak. Don't assume that you know how God's going to do this thing. Come here and listen, he said, to the words of the Lord, your God. Come and listen to the words of the Lord. Can I remind you what Zephaniah 4, 6 says? How God's going to do it? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God, God wants to lead us, not on our strength or ingenuity or ability, but he wants to lead us by his Holy Spirit. You can't just run out and say, I'm going to do God's work my way. You got to go by the book. You got to be led by the Spirit of God. So Joshua made the people come And listen to the word of the Lord. And can I just tell you, that's what a Joshua generation is. People that say, I'm going to obey God. No matter what anybody else does, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do what God's word says to the best of my ability. I want to hear his word and be obedient to walk according to his word. Now, let me hurry to just tell you how the story kind of plays out. Over the next couple of verses, Joshua gives them the plan. He tells the priest, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take the ark. You're going to put it up on your shoulders and you're going to go out in front of the people. I want you to go a long way out in front of them because it was a lot of people. And if they were close, not everybody would be able to see it. But I want you to get it out there so that everybody can follow it. I want you to keep your eyes on on the ark, what represents Jesus. And you're going to go out there and and you're going to step into the Jordan. And when you get into the Jordan, God is going to stop the waters from flowing so that all the people can go across on dry ground. That's, that's what God told him. Oh, and by the way, he says down in verse 16. By the way, it's flood stage. So you're not just crossing a, a, a little stream here. No, th- this is flood stage. The, the waters have swollen over their banks. It's probably about a mile wide, most think. About as wide as the Susquehanna. And there's about two million people. We're going to get this done in one day. Okay, you guys ready? I I can just imagine what it must have been like for the priest. They got got the ark on their shoulder. They're walking, they're walking right up to the water's edge. He said, get in first? That's what he said. Are you sure? (laughs) Water's flowing by. I can just imagine the conversation. Maybe you've never had this conversation with God, but I can just imagine the conversation with God. Hey, God, uh, this isn't how you do this. You know, my daddy was a priest. And you remember when he got to the water's edge? You parted the waters for Moses, and then they went across. That's how they said you do this. And God's just going, yeah, but your daddy's generation, they never learned how to trust me until after I moved. And you need to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. So you go first. Yeah, but God, uh, I got my Sunday clothes on here. I'm in my royal priestly garments. And 
I'm not going to look too spiritual if this thing starts floating up and away on me. And God say, I don't, that's the point. I, I don't care about you looking spiritual. I want you to be spiritual. I want you to do what I say do when I say do it, no matter what it looks like in the flesh. So you go ahead. So the first two priests, they step down into the ark, into the, into the river, ankle deep. Nothing happens. So they go a little farther. The next two step in. Nothing happens. They all start moving out into the Jordan. All the people are watching. They're waiting. They've heard stories their whole life of how God parted the Red Sea. Now they're watching the Jordan. And their head, they're just getting lower and lower in the water. And it looks like nothing is happening until finally all the priests are out there in the water. And they're holding the ark. If you've ever been in a place like that in the realm of faith where you felt like the water's rising and you're going, oh God, where are you? The best thing they could be is under, under the ark. They were under Jesus. And they're standing, what in the world are you, are you doing, God? What, what are you doing? Little did they know that God was not going to just part the waters in some massive, uh, beautiful miracle that they could all display, that they could all see. The Bible says that 30 miles upstream in a town called Adam, God built a supernatural dam. God stopped the water with his hand. They couldn't see it. It was 30 miles away. And here's what I love about this story. You've got to see this verse with me. Look at verse 16. No, let's back up to 15. It says, now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priest who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet Touched the water's edge. I I love this. As soon as they touched the water's edge. Look what it says happened. The water from upstream stopped flowing. It stopped flowing. Here they are standing there in the middle of the Jordan. The water's rushing by them. And they're thinking, God, you forgot about me. Lord, you're making a fool of us. Little did they know. The first moment that their toe touched the water, 30 miles away, God started working a miracle. 30 miles away. Listen, some of you, you've been praying for stuff for so long, you don't see anything happening, and you're at a place in your life where you're going, God, you forgot about me, man. The water's about to take me away in the current. Little do you know that provision is already flowing down from upstream. Healing is already flowing from upstream. Supply is already coming to your doorstep. God is ready to do a miracle in response to faith rather than us standing on the shoreline and saying, God, if you move, we'll obey. Would you just be so willing as to be a Joshua generation and step out and say, God, we're going to follow you. I don't care what this world does. This, this culture is at flood stage. America is at flood stage. It looks like maybe the worst time in the world to believe for revival. But you know what? God wants us to possess the land. God wants to bring revival. I want to see this community absolutely changed for the glory of God. He's looking for somebody that'll say, God, I'm going to follow you no matter what. I'm going to, I'm going to follow you. And I'm not just going to look to you and, and look to your word and know about you. But God, I'm going to consecrate myself. I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to come apart from the things of this world. Like the New Testament says, yes, we're in this world, but we're not of this world. God, I want my life to live in contrast to this world around me. And if you'll be so bold as to say, God, I'm going to follow you no matter what. I'm going to consecrate myself. 
And I'm not going to assume or presume upon God, but I'm going to listen for your word. Whatever you say to do, that's what we're going to do. Every day, God, I'm coming to your word. Your word is truth. Your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. The steps of the righteous are ordered by God. Lord, order my steps in your word today. Order my steps. Prepare me, O God. If we'll do that, God will make you a person. God will make us a people that can cross over into seeing things that we've never seen before. It's not about leaving what's bad and going to what's good. It's about stepping from what is good into what is God's best for your life and for my life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life to the fullest, to the overflow. And he wants that. He wants that for each and every one of us. I want to pray for you here at the conclusion of this service. And I want to ask if you'd bow your head with me. Close your eyes and just take a moment. Just a few moments longer and we'll be done. We'll be dismissed. just want to invite you not to respond to me but to respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit inside of your heart because you might be like the Israelites that this is not the first time you've stood at this shore Moses generation stood there they had the potential to cross but they turned and they went back and I just want to challenge you what is the obstacle what is the barrier between you and everything that God wants for you, everything that He intends for your life. Don't stand on the banks waiting for God to put a rainbow in the sky or, or cause situations to fall into place. Don't wait for God to do some kind of a miracle. Just take Him at His word. Step out in faith and say, Today, in my heart, Jesus, I'm stepping into the waters. It might feel like flood stage. Some of you, you need to fight for your marriage. And you think, you know what? It's, a little, it's not the best time for me to bring up the situation. No, it is time. It's time to step into the waters. Some of you, you, you need to put God first in an area of your life. Maybe it's your finances and you say, yeah, but you know, we've got some things that we've got to take care of first. Once we take care of those things and get everything in order, once the water goes down a little bit, we'll start to, we'll start to support missions we'll start to give our tithe be a joshua generation step in at flood stage whatever it is that the lord is speaking to you about i want to just challenge you to muster faith in your heart say god today today i fix my eyes on jesus i consecrate my life i step away from sin and i step towards your plan and your purpose God, I want to hear your word and I want to step out in obedience.